Welcome, Legionaries, to Legion Cast episode 38. We're here for another Hobby Roundtable. I am your host, Warwick, and joining me is my co-host, Brandon. Hey, guys. Great to be back here. Um, really disappointed I missed last episode. I had so many hot takes on that book, but, you know, it's family first, so have to uh, take care of business there. But uh, glad to be back. And fresh from his detox session, my brother, Maniple. Greetings, long beards. My grudge this week is against the weather. It's a good grudge to have. And joining us as usual, and also hopefully detoxed from uh, that terrible, terrible book, our buddy Paul. I don't know so much as detoxed as frozen over. We're finally getting our one week of snow in Texas here, and I'm not looking forward to it. It happens every year, and I hate it so much. We are going to be talking hobby news, or the lack thereof. We have a GW intern hour where we talk about traveling with models and some of the options that we've had over the, the past few years. And we have a Fulgrim's quest where we're going to be talking about our favorite weathering effects. So who wants to lead with the hobby news or lack thereof? Are we talking about what's on our hobby table? Yeah. So before we get into the, I think the one article that GW had that was relevant, I did get some a chance uh, over the Christmas break to put together uh, a new squad of headhunters, and I got them just glued on to their bases, although it's going to be too cold for a while to do any priming. Then I got started on a heavy weapons team, but I realized partway through I only had three missile launchers, so I wanted five. So now I've got to try to find two of the um, the, the old Mark uh, missile launchers so I can finish off that little squad, but I do have five heavy bolters. I just kept finding in a lot of the battles I had, I didn't have, I really wanted a squad of guys with some heavy weapons that were, didn't have a huge bullseye targeted on, on them. They could have a little more flexibility, take on some different targets rather than my um, land raiders or my, I'm, I'm getting rid of the, the, that fire Raptor. It's I'm not going to run that again. It's just going to be a centerpiece and do something. I think with, all those points a lot more effectively in small units of, of infantry will, will pay dividends. So that's that's my plan going forward for my next battle. Awesome. Well, Paul, why don't you tell us what's on your hobby table? Yep, just uh, working on the Sons of Horus. I finally got the infantry based, uh, transfer sheeted, and varnished. Broke out that AK Interactive Ultra Matte, and I, I really like it. It is very matte but that is exactly what I wanted. So I'm pleasantly surprised about it. Yeah. They don't joke around when they say ultra matte. That stuff is excellent. Yeah. And it was really easy to work with. I was kind of surprised. So yeah, got that stuff done and uh, looking to do all the handwork now. Awesome. Warwick, what about you? Well, I, uh, I had a long weekend this weekend. We were, my uh, workplace was shut down on Friday because of the blizzard. So I stayed home and set up my airbrush and I airbrushed the base coat onto Treebeard uh, for my Middle-Earth minis. I got a, a really nice brown base coat for him, for the wood bark. And I hit that with a layer of Agrax, and it turned a little brighter than I wanted, but I got a plan to darken it up after talking to you guys. And then I also, with my airbrush, finally started putting some paint on some Night Lords. And I started off with my Night Lords Dreadnought, which I, or Leviathan Dreadnought, which I think looks awesome. I got a really clean base coat on him. I struggled at first because of the first time with my own airbrush. I struggled a little bit kind of getting into the into the groove of it. 
I had a little bit of paint build up on the end of my needle about halfway through and it got really frustrating from that point on. But after I got it all cleaned out, I ran a couple of tests through it and it worked a lot better after that. And I, I think I've got the, um, the pressure dialed in for where I want it. And uh, I've got mm, 25, well, uh, sorry, no, I've got 40 Night Lords Tactical Marines, five Contacars, three Rapier Gun Batteries, and a uh, Derradeo Dreadnought that I will be taking to work with me. And I, will, I have a uh, climate-controlled ventilated room in there that I can prime them in. And then I'll be able to get the blue base coat down on them after that. So I've, I've got a lot of airbrushing ahead of me. Awesome. Yeah, glad you're enjoying that airbrush setup. It's uh, it's a game changer to be sure. I I have barely worked on much of anything. Uh, I've been kind of in a hobby block the past couple of weeks getting back from this trip. Uh, work picked up fast and furious right out of the gate coming back from the, the holidays. So that's been sucking up a lot of my time. Um uh, and then the other thing is that uh, I am going to Las Vegas Open this weekend. So I'm not playing Heresy there. I'll be playing Middle Earth and getting ready for that has also taken up the lion's share of my time. I've not been playing much Heresy because of that, trying to, to get prepared for that tournament. So a lot of orcs on my, uh, my table, uh, but not, uh, not any Marines. Should we go into the news? Yeah, I can take that. Um, yeah, it was uh, pretty light uh, since the last podcast. I think the only real major thing to talk about is Imperialis is getting its first supplement book, The Great Slaughter, which is going to be basically the Beta Garmin campaign. Yeah, I mean, it looks interesting. It reminds me a I'm lot of... I'm surprised they start there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that seems to be the trend with a lot of that's late. This stuff with Games Workshop, though, because I mean, in Heresy, the first book is Siege of Chthonia. Like they really just seem to be pushing towards Siege of Terra. Well, I mean, if you think about it, though, like all of Heresy 1.0 was basically the early Heresy. So it kind of made sense that they started moving into Middle Heresy with 2.0, even though all of us joined in in the second edition. Those those long beards who had already been here, they'd already done all the her early Heresy stuff. And Siege of Chthonia is also really well written to that. It can kind of fall anywhere in the Heresy. So I, like the actual full-on battle in the book doesn't happen until like Beta Garmin is finished, but... It, it does have a history of the entirety of Chthonia throughout the entire heresy. It's just surprising to me that Beta Garmin is where they would start with Imperialis. It really does feel like Games Workshop's just trying to push for Siege of Terra. They kind of want to get past the heresy stuff so they can get into that conflict. Yeah. So for the people who might be newbies to the Horus Heresy, after the Siege of Terra and the Chaos Forces are dispersed. What do we call that era after the the siege? After the Emperor goes under the throne? The Scouring. Okay. Would that still... Would those games still be played with the Horus Heresy rules for the most part? 
I think so because a lot of the Primarchs are still around at that point. Like, spoilers, Gilliman doesn't uh, come off the table until the Scouring. Technically, the Lion is in the Scouring, although it's kind of isolated from everything else. Perturabo disappears in the Scouring. Lehman Russ disappears in the Scouring. I mean, that, Spe- that's any of them that didn't die, that's kind of when they, they disappear. Right. So speaking of the lion, I did. I tried to follow when he came back in the 40k lore. How did he come back? Did he just kind of, he just showed up? Is that how they explained it? Was there a story behind it? My understanding is that like basically for 10,000 years, the watchers had him in a pocket dimension and he just kind of walked out of it. Okay. Now with a beard. Yeah. With a beard now. What? <laughs> Uh, I, it's, it's really, I was very interested in following this and I really feel like they kind of fumbled that storyline. Yeah. Cause I kept looking for like some big reveal that this is why he was gone. And then he just shows up and it's like, let's get back to work. And that's, that was just it. Yeah. I mean, they, they kind of have this loose thread with all the Primarchs in 40 K, which is just, they've left with a promise to return at the end times kind of thing. You know, some of them, like Vulcan, have a much more concrete, like, you have to find my artifacts before I return. And, you know, like Russ, you know, the hunts are looking for him. But then there are some like Korax, which is like, he's in the warp. He might be a demon. He might not be. Is he coming back? We don't know. Uh, He's coming back. He (laughs) is coming back right after Lorgar. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, with the line, it was always just, he's in a coma under the rock with the Watchers. Um, the actual, uh, was Arcs of Omen books do give a bit more lore on what he was doing and why he's back kind of thing. But, um, off the top of my head, I don't really remember. Well, and I, I got away from, I wanted to collect all those, but I think they were running those campaign books for a while and I was, I was following them, getting them, but then they got to be like 40, then 50, then $60. And all you're getting was a handful of rules and some that was when the next book came out, we're already out of date. And then the fluff you got didn't go anywhere. It was like a, a poorly written pulp novel, almost barely, not even as good as that. And I thought, well, the, but these stories don't go anywhere. I remember reading the, the, the three part with Gulliman, how he and Cypher are heading to Terra with this, with the Yvrain who's got a sword that can conquer life and death. And, He's gonna and Cipher is there with another sword, his his famous sword, and then Cipher is one. I think Cipher wants to get in and kill the emperor. Is, I think is what he wants to do, but then he shows up and they say, "Put him in jail." Okay, they put him in jail, and then he escapes and he's gone. I, I do like that. In that though, they meet up in the Blackstone, and Cipher's like, "Hey, I need to get to Terra, and I'll take you there." on the promise that you let me see the emperor and Gilliman's like, I don't trust this guy, but I need to get out of here. So sure. Whatever you want to hear. And as soon as they get to Terra, he looks at the custodes and goes, arrest that dude. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> one of the, my favorite fan theories that I've ever heard is that the current cipher is actually Omegon. And part of that, that thing is, um, because Alpharius was more on the traitor side of things and Omegon was more 
or less on the loyalist side. That's why the Alpha Legion was so split and constantly working against itself. Uh, one of my favorite uh, theories there is like, yeah, he was trying to get in to kill the Emperor. But the reason he was trying to do that is so that once the Emperor's connection to his physical body is separated, he can ascend to godhood and like fully apotheosis, full apotheosis. Yeah, that's been a that's been in the lore for years. That yeah. if he would finally, you know, re- unshackle himself from this mortal coil, he'd be more powerful than, than the chaos gods, and he could do all the things he actually wanted to do. But it's only a theory. Yeah, there have been some hints in the Siege of Terra books, but unfortunately for our listeners, they're going to have to wait, you know, twenty five years from now when we finally get to those books. Well, speaking of that, that was part of the. The news this week, wasn't it, that the pre-order is up for The End and the Death, Volume 3. It's finally going to be over. Yeah, this is it. This is the big one. Jeez. Do you think they're going to do, like, scouring the the scouring books after this? You know, I was actually talking to a friend of the show, Martin Emery, and he and I are kind of in agreement. They are not done with this heresy era. Um, so I don't know if we'll get more like obscure tales during the actual heresy timeline or if we'll jump into the scouring, but this, this line of books for them is the moneymaker for black library. It's not the AOS books. It's, it's not even the 40 K books anymore. Uh, it, do you think, these. do you think it's because this one follows like it's, it's kind of a contained storyline almost it's, I don't want to say it's, uh, it's got the most continuity because as we've discovered by reading these books, there there's not, sometimes they miss continuity, but. But it's got more continuity than 40 K. Yeah, very true. But what I, I guess what I'm trying to say is that they follow a, a similar thread. It's like all of these things are working towards the, all the books here are working towards the end of the heresy. Yeah, there's that. I think the other big thing, especially back in the day, the appeal to the Horus Heresy series was you didn't have to play the specific faction that the book is about to enjoy it, right? In the 40K novels, if you don't like Blood Angels and don't play them, reading the Blood Angels omnibus doesn't really do a whole lot for you. But reading, you know, Horus Rising, at least the first 10 books, it doesn't matter what chapter or legion you're playing, they're good books and they fill you in on a lot of the backstory that informs a lot of the lore in 40k so it's worth reading i disagree i quite like the blood angels omnibus that's actually one of the better 40 yeah i I was gonna say the the blood angels omnibus gives blood angel players a lot to go with yeah yeah but that's kind of the thing though like as a raven guard player i read it and said these are really good books and i enjoyed it but i'm a raven guard player there was nothing here for me outside of just a good story but with heresy you know there's something i can talk about because there's something that you know, goes back to the history of my legion and the Imperium. Sure. Yeah, and I, I do, I'm not going to lie though, I do kind of worry that we're going to get the Marvel syndrome on this. Like, because like right now, they are wrapping up their fan, their Infinity Arc. What comes after the Infinity Arc? Fucking Phase 4. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to be good. <laughs> so like, the ball is here to fumble it. And I would feel very confident in them fumbling it. I would feel very good about placing that bet. I'm in a betting mood right now because I'm about to go to Vegas. 
I'm trying to think what uh, what kind of stories are we really missing from the overall timeline outside of uh, random battles. I think all are all the Primark books out. The side ones. I don't know. Those are good. I doubt. Yeah. yeah, I'd have to look into that. I know they don't have um, one for Horace, but they released like an omnibus one instead with his picture on it. You know, I wouldn't hate like a, um, and it wouldn't need to be a big long series. I wouldn't hate like a following Abaddon after the heresy and like going from his, from the Siege of Terra to his rise to being Warmaster and then becoming the butt of every joke in the 41st millennium. <laughs> I, I'm trying to remember the 40k book. I think it's Black Legion kind of does that a little bit. Talks about the formation of the Black Legion. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's some stories written about Abaddon, like getting the sword and a couple other things. But, I mean, if they're going to be writing that story, they're going to be just moving into scouring. Yeah. Well, did anybody here actually pick up the end of the death on pre-order? No. I'll wait till it's on Audible. Yeah. Yeah, I just... Yeah, I don't. I've limited shelf space as it is, and to be quite frank, a lot of Warhammer books don't make the cut to be on my shelf because I try to keep the great works there. Um, but on that note, I want to talk about this article that got went out on Warhammer Community uh, a couple of days ago about which books do you need to read to get up to speed for the Sie- Siege of Terra. Did everybody see this? Yeah, I got excited when I saw it. I thought it'd be a great topic to help people get into our podcast. But then Ridge said, eh, no, it's not all that. Oh, it's a topic, all right. And we're going to talk about it here. Yeah, this is a big oof. Yeah, so as we all know, there are 54 books in the Horus Heresy series. Not counting the Siege of Terra at all. 54. So... Old, uh, our old buddies over at uh, Warhammer Community put out this, uh, how many threads are combined to weave the incredible tapestry of the Horus Heresy series? And basically, this is just a roadmap of what gets you to the Siege of Terra in a hurry. Uh, would you guys like to go through it with me? 54 books, right? It's probably going to be a lot of reading. Yeah, there are going to be a lot of books here. So the first few books, to no great surprise, the first five books are all on this list. Horus Rising, False Gods, Galaxy in Flames, Flight of the Eisenstein, Culminating in Fulgrim. Hands down, I think this might be legitimately the best arc of the series. And it's obviously the most consistent. Yeah, absolutely. These first five books keep me interested in the rest of this series. So from there, we get... uh, we get some honorable mentions in the first heretic uh, deliverance lost and Vulcan lives. But really that is just them saying, if you want more on the drop site massacre, you read these books. Uh, don't read Vulcan lives. If you're looking for drop site massacre, that's, that's not a good ad <laughs> from there though. We go to the next major plot point of the heresy, which is the burning of Prospero. And they recommend a Thousand Suns and Prospero Burns. I don't think you need both of these. I think you need one or the other. Uh, I actually would disagree with you there. I think reading both gives you the full picture from both sides. Yeah, because one's the Council of Nicaea, the other's the Prospero Burns. Yeah. So you do kind of want both. 
if anything, I would push back and say you need a thousand suns and about the last 30 minutes of Prospero Burns. All right. From there, we move into Imperium Secundus, our next major plot point. And for some reason in here, uh, they have No No Fear, obviously. Uh, Angel Exterminatus, which has nothing to do with Imperium Secundus. Which both of those are really, are two really good Excellent books. books. Yeah. And then an unremem- the Unremembered Empire. Angel Exterminatus is, takes place nowhere near those two books. Like timeline wise, maybe, but location and character wise, nowhere near one another. I guess maybe just to say it's like, here's where the Ultramarines get kicked in the nuts. Here is where Perturabo loses some of his mojo and Fulgrim ascends. And then the Unremembered Empire is basically just what the Lion, Sanguinius, Gilliman, and Conrad Kurz have been up to for the past couple of years, maybe? Mm-hmm. Year or so? Yeah. So, I would say if I was going to do oh. three books... Oh, go ahead. Vulcan shows up in Unremembered Empire 2. Oh, yeah. Um... Uh, if I was going to do three books for Imperium Secundus, I would do No, No Fear, The Unremembered Empire, and Angels of Caliban. I would do uh, Betrayer. Ooh, that's Betrayer is a, is technically a Imperium Secundus book. Yeah, because that's the Shadow Crusade. Yes. Okay. That's a good, that's a good shout. So actually, I would do that over Angels of Caliban. Yeah, um, and... Uh, but Betrayer is an excellent book as well. Yeah. All right, guys. So now we're at Imperium Secundus. Anybody think of any other plot points, major beats that maybe we need to hit here? Any recommendations to throw out there? Need to um, do the whole Molech arc. Molech is a big one. Huge. That's where, you know, Horus gets his mojo back. What about stuff happening on Mars? Did we cover the Mechanicum and all that stuff? Oh yeah, Mars. That's Mars not important as well. Not important. That's not. That's not important. Okay. All right, Warwick. What about you? What's another big one we need to shout out that you can think of? I, I think Maniple nailed it with uh, the Mars arc. Like, what's going on on Mars? Fair um, enough. I'm trying to think of what else. I think the Shadow um, Crusade was a great yeah, call out. Sh- Shadow Crusade for me is one of the big ones. Um, uh, maybe then we can jump into Beta Garmin. And that's exactly where we jump to after, right after Imperium Secundus. We're going to skip all that stuff and go right to one book in Beta Garmin, which is Titan Death. Again, Games Workshop just wants to skip to the end. Yes, very much so. Now, I will say this. A lot of people don't like Titan Death. It, I, I have very mixed feelings on the book. When it is big, stompy robots beating the shit out of each other, top-tier stuff. When it is not that, throw it in the bin. Snooze fest. I think it's the only book I can remember that shows the ascension of a demon Titan, which I thought was pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah, that was Um, a cool scene. I haven't gotten to that one yet, but one of the arcs that I really enjoyed and I'm looking forward to to getting into, and it's one of the legions that's often just forgotten, like Raven Guard, but the White Scars arc is phenomenal. The White Scars arc is also excellent. I think it's really good you would think that would be one we want to follow seeing is where they end up yeah they, they're yeah. at the siege of Terra, so it's like you yeah. think that maybe we need to know where jagatai and his guys were yeah maybe we need to know who jagatai and his guys are because we haven't even see, haven't even seen them 
but yeah, that's so that's their article. Then obviously every book in the Siege of Terra line is required reading uh, from there. I will say I have read a few of the Siege of Terra books. Uh, the Solar War is okay. Uh, the First Wall is kind of bad. Uh, Saturnine is really good. Like, really good. I got a, at the Phoenix event, for uh, one of the prizes I won was a hard copy of Saturnine. And I haven't had time to read it yet. I recommend it. And then, isn't there another book? Oh, yeah, The Lost and the Damned. That's also pretty good. Yeah, that was decent. Uh, and Mortis is in there, which is just Titan Death, but worse. Mortis is right after uh, Saturnine, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we should talk uh, a little bit about the media you're going to get these on. You can still find the the paperback versions of a lot of these books on eBay. They run anywhere from twelve to fifty dollars. Looks like the Black Library has them on an ebook format for ten or nine ninety nine US, or you get the audiobook on from GW for forty. Now, work. How do you listen to your books? Do you get them on Audible, and are they that expensive? So uh, I've got an Audible subscription, so I tend to get the audiobooks. I've got quite a few of these on hard copy, but because of uh, the way my workflow is set up, I can e- very easily listen to audiobooks. So most of the time I'm listening to these on audiobook rather than reading the physical copy. And some of them I just don't have, and it's easier for me to... Uh, I've got most of the audiobooks already on collection because I've been listening to them for a couple of years now. So that's that's what I've been doing. I think an Audible subscription is like fourteen ninety nine a month, and then you get a credit. And every once in a while, and I tend to listen to a lot of audiobooks, and not just heresy books, but I tend to keep a wide variety. That way, I'm not getting burned out on this content. Um, I'll pick up a, a couple extra credits every now and then just to to have something to listen to. Yeah, when we originally talked about starting this podcast, one of the things we really wanted to do was we wanted to physically read the books instead of doing audio and we very quickly discovered that that was just not feasible um one just due to time constraints and two a lot of these are out of print and you can't find them in physical copies anymore yeah and i'm on a quest to get the whole set uh but i'm just i'm just having to kind of space them out by maybe one a month uh maybe two a month but when you're looking at a at a paperback that sold for seven dollars originally, paying forty for now, is 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 a tough, a bitter pill to swallow. But I will like to see them all on my shelf collected when they're done. So we'll we'll see if I keep up on this uh, quest or not. I think I remember being in a used bookstore with you a couple years ago, and you found one of the the like the large versions of a couple of the books. And I think one of them was Damnation of Pythos, and it was only going for like a couple of bucks, wasn't it? Yeah, I think I, there, there was the the large the large print versions of those. Some of them were hardback. I think I got five or six books. They weren't all thirty k. Some were forty k. But I, I I got them all for I think three or four dollars a piece. So that was a pretty good deal. You just gotta hit those used bookstores, boys. They are out there, but it takes a lot of time and energy. And you gotta ask the question: How much is your time worth? Pay eighteen dollars on eBay, or spend a whole afternoon on your vacation? Hidden the used I think, bookstores. I think the the funnier part of this story is that yeah, some of these better books are going to be going for thirty or forty dollars, but the bad ones are only going for a couple of bucks. Just my thought. Yep, definitely. Well, should we uh, wrap up our uh, our hobby news or lack thereof segment? And- I think so. 
And it sounds like we're getting some some Vox disruptions. You might want to go check the mail. Oh, man, we have an email. And it's from our good friends, the good ship Chili Dog. It's been a while since we've heard from them, so let's give this a read here. Hail, Legion cast. It is good to speak with you again after such a long respite. We apologize for our long silence. We forgive you. But we have spent a great deal of, a great deal of time searching out Slanesh cults near the Eye of Terror because our Primarch has determined that they put chemicals in our ship's water supply that is negatively affecting some of the amphibious fauna that we currently uh, that we recently collected for study and experimentation. Yep, you gotta watch sounds, out for that stuff, man. They'll get you. Sounds suspicious. Yes. <laughs> we seek your counsel on a matter of grave and desperate importance that will likely affect the rest of our mor- mortal existence. Since we started listening to Legion Cast, our entire cr- crew has become engrossed in playing the Horus Heresy tabletop game. Most of our personal time is now consumed with painting models, setting up games, and combing through codexes. Uh, because of our Legion's lack of a homeworld, all of our wives and girlfriends live on the ship with us, and they have become incensed with our newfound love of the hobby. They have given us a drastic ultimatum. Either each one of us is to retire permanently from the hobby, or they will ceremonially jettison themselves into a, the dark void of space, leaving us alone and without hope of continuing the bloodline. Our question, if it isn't already obvious, is this. Since we're about to have so much more time on our hands, what other games should we start playing? We heard your brief discussion about Age of Sigmar on an earlier episode, and we were quite intrigued. So what, in your opinion, is the best game for new Horus Heresy players to start to branch out to, and why? We eagerly anticipate your response. The Emperor protects the good ship Chili Dog. Well, Chili Dog, I'm glad that you came to the right decision. Um, What do we think, guys? New games for someone who's getting in, starting their tabletop journey with Horus Heresy. Where would we steer them from here? I just think that we've had so much fun with Adeptus Titanicus and the ability to roll those games into a game of 30k. And it's it's a great kind of a brain cleanser because I think as the thing with 30k is that you've got so many rules to remember, so many keywords and so many little nuances and all this this crunch when you when you get into adeptus titanicus all of the strategy and the thinking is there but with a very simplified rule set you don't uh, unless you're running a, a chaos mutated titan with 10 different mutations there's not a lot of fiddly stuff to memorize it's all about you and your opponent and these pieces going after each other and that can really help the strategic part of your brain without being weighed down by all the rules like what's the difference between brutal and eviscerating and you know whatever other melee rule that there is? Uh, that's where I would immediately go is to Titanicus. Yeah, I think Titanicus is a great pick. Um, it kind of captures the same spirit uh, that I feel with Horus Heresy, which is when you're playing the game, everybody's got the same tools in their toolbox. Uh, it's just how effectively do you use those tools? And that's something I really like about heresy and titanicus it's even more so apparent in there it's still very crunchy um i like managing my reactor on my titans i like you know having to to repair and one of the things i actually really love about titanicus is there's no pre-measuring it's one of my favorite things about it is you just kind of have to be like mm, i think i can make that shot 
um, turns out I can't, or turns out I can. So I think that's a great shout. So that's how you know if a game is a, be- a GW beginner game or an expert game. This doesn't let you measure first. If you can't measure first, they're assuming that that is for veteran players who have played a bunch of other games and now want something to really test their metal. But it, I think it makes the f- games a lot more fun when you have those failed charges or you have those ranges you're not quite sure about. It really make, get, get, gets your brain moving in a new direction, and I love that. Mm-hmm. See, I'm so... Manipal, you can probably re- relate. To that. Actually, I'm sure all you guys can. I cannot fathom a game where pre-measuring is okay. That's just... That blows my mind. I... It, because when I first started playing games, there was never any pre-measuring. And now it's basically standard in a lot of the newer games coming out. And I just, I'm still very much flat out against it. Yeah, that was a, a new thing that came out in 40K a few years ago. And you saw, then you saw other companies doing the same thing as a way to get people in. And I, I can testify that I was one of those guys who got frustrated with ranges in warhammer fantasy battles the first few times i played but when you got good at it it was an amazingly effective tool especially if you're better than your opponent because you could gauge where those cannonballs were going to land and bounce and how many guys they were going to kill and and it got to the point where my buddy and i could look at the table and say okay that's 27 inches and and get it bang on so it's a skill you can learn you just have to train it And, and once you do it it's 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 amazing it's it's really interesting in games where even when you can pre-measure, you know, maybe you have a movement shenanigan as well, because somebody will put a piece there and be like, all right, you're not going to be able to get me there. And you go, I actually think I can get you, you know. So I remember this uh, this email here. It talks about Age of Sigmar a little bit. I remember an Age of Sigmar game back in second edition where I had that uh, that orc mega boss on a maw crusher and. I, I was in Houston playing a tournament. This guy packed his entire army into a tiny little corner while I was dead center on my side of the board. And he goes, you're not going to get me from here. And I went 36 inches and I got him. <laughs> so that like when you got something that can really move and then you just kind of eyeball the range, you just look at it and you're like, do I want to even try this play? Because that's three separate moves that you have to commit to each one before you do the next one. So when you have a skill like that, it's, it's actually really fun and can really throw people for a loop. Now, again, because this rec, uh, he directly talks about Age of Sigmar here, let's talk, a fa- let's talk fantasy games, um, because maybe that's the direction that they're looking to go. If it was still Age of Sigmar 2nd Edition, I would be like, jump right in, baby. It's a great game. Unfortunately, at least for me, Age of Sigmar 3rd Edition has really dipped towards the competitive side of games. I don't think it's super friendly to new players anymore. I'm sure there are people out there who will disagree with me, but that that's how I felt. I would suggest finding somebody that will let you play a demo and see how you like that before you take the dive on you know, buying a whole bunch of models and getting really invested in a game you're not sure about. Yeah, the other thing with Age of Sigmar being that it's a mainline game, it means that you're going to be dealing with rules turnover constantly, just like that's because that's their moneymaker right there. Selling rule books is how they make money. The the buy-in for that game is not small either. Um, Mm -hmm. 
and they do the the battle force boxes that they're putting out look like they're probably a good deal i haven't crunched the numbers on them to know if they are uh but you do look like you're getting quite a bit of plastic with what you're getting um the centerpiece models that they're doing for that game are phenomenal they have some of the coolest looking models in any of their lines they are so freaking cool that Brandon, when you bought me that Star Drake and I, I put that together and painted that, that thing is awesome. It's one of the, my favorite models that I've ever done. You know, all the demons, all the big orc models are really cool too. So if you're, even if you're just looking for something to get into on the kind of hobby side of it, I think Age of Sigmar is probably a safe bet. But if you're looking to play the game, definitely try to find a demo before you really get into it. Yeah, I mean, you guys can see back here my top shelf. That's all Sigmar models up there because they're just beautiful models uh, and some of my favorites as well. But I don't know. Um, Paul Manipal, what do you guys think here? Yeah, I'm a bit reticent to recommend another major battle strategy game. I mean, just the cost. its It adds up. You know, when you start playing 40K... Age of Sigmar, Heresy, Old World. It just, it adds up to be a lot of money in models. I did have a thought, and I've, I've played a couple demos of it, uh, but I haven't really, and I've got a ton of models for the game as well. If you want to keep it in the sci-fi vein, and you're looking for some really rich and deep lore, Battletech is crazy cool. There's so much awesome stuff to Battletech. The models that they're coming out with right now are awesome. Yeah, see, that was going to be my recommendation, was... <laughs> well, not specifically Battletech, but uh, something I've noticed with a lot of Games Workshop is I think it's because of how much it costs and the amount of time it takes. People that play Games Workshop games seem to be almost reticent to move out of that wheelhouse, but there is a wide variety of other skirmish and strategy games out there that are really fun, like Malifaux, which gives you that more steampunk weird west kind of feel infinity which is more like a near future kind of game i mean there's a very wide variety of things you could look for in just about any flavor yeah and if you there, there's a, a style of gameplay called agnostic games where you just get a rule set and you can use any models that you have in your collection so i buy a lot of the osprey rule sets and they have everything from sci-fi to fantasy to roman legions to steampunk and lovecraft and what i've done over the years is i've i've kickstarted a whole bunch of different board games with models from all different eras and sizes and shapes and and themes but these osprey books will let you use your models in any sort of way that you want so you could take those 30k models you already have put them in a, a sci-fi setting and 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 you could use it as a, a skirmish type uh, battle of whatever you want, or you can make it a little bit of an RPG, you know, and start moving to that role playing game, sort of, sort of, sort of, sort of thinking. And those rule books only cost twenty, twenty five dollars, and you already have the models, so you don't need to then expend a whole bunch more money on this. So, I still have this idea. I'm going to play one of these uh, agnostic games one of these days, but never get around to it. But I've got them all on my shelf ready to go. Actually, kind of piggybacking on that, that's another major factor. Before you start any game, uh, you should check your local community and see what other people are playing. Um, I bought Infinity 
models back like 10 years ago because I thought they were cool and I saw them on the site. And man, it took me like eight years to find another person who even knew that the game existed. Uh, just because my local area has never had it. I ended up here in Dallas. There's one and it's about 40 minutes away. There's one store in Dallas that plays. So if I want to go, I have to go out there. So, you know, that's another thing to consider is what kind of player base are you going to be able to walk into? Yeah, I, I will say we do need to play Infinity because I still want that Russian bear with the hammer. That thing just looks super cool. I don't know if it's good. I don't know if it's bad. I don't know if that faction is good, but I want that bear with that hammer. I, I have a funny story about Infinity. One of my buddies up here wanted to play some different games. And he was trying to get into 30K or Infinity or War Machine or whatever. And he went to the local shop and a guy said he would teach him Infinity. And so they set up their models. And I don't know how they got determined first player, but the other guy, the, the expert, was the first player. And then he spent 15 minutes wiping out my buddy's army. And by the time it was his turn, he had no models left. And the guy looked at him and said, that's a game of infinity. GG. And that was it. He says, I don't think it's the game for me. And that was it. He never played again. I've had a lot of War Machine games like that. I've only had War Machine games like that. <laughs> um, um, Maniple, what was that? Um, there was a rule set that you you had hosted a game night a long time ago called Gutshot. And it's like an Old West shooter kind of game. Was that one of those Osprey games? No, Gutshot is its own thing, but it's a, a Wild West shoot 'em up game. And it, it's if you look at Agnostic Games, it's 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 like that. It's good. I think it came from Black Scorpion Press. And all you, you you just have to make the background for your character, but your character has a very simple rule. And a lot of these historical games are like this, where you have a target number of seven, and on two dice you have to hit seven to do anything. You want to jump on a horse, it's a seven. You want to jump off a roof, it's a seven. Shoot that guy, it's a seven. But then characters can get skills that make them better at any of those things. So this guy's a good shooter, so he hits on a six. This guy has a peg leg, so he, he can't jump as good. He's a seven or an eight. And then you you strip out all the other rules out of it that you need. And you're just hitting these, these target numbers. But then you build a scenario, a story, whatever rules you need per session, and then you're done. So Gutshot, and I think uh, Black Scorpion also did one for uh, Pirates called Cutlass or something like that. And there's a lot of games like that. So don't be afraid to branch out. That was one of the most, that was, that was some of the most fun I've ever had is playing a game like Gutshot or um, what's the Hot Wheels game? Gaslands. Gaslands. That's what I was about to talk about. <laughs> yeah. Gaslands is just Mad Max with Hot Wheel cars. Right. <laughs> Right. Um, I think so. That's some options. Yeah. Yeah. So now this part for me is kind of selfish because I want to talk about this as well. But again, since this email specifically mentions Age of Sigmar, and we are talking about mostly about a Games Workshop game, there are two other fantasy games that Games Workshop makes. Now there are two other fantasy games. I'm the only one here who never played Warhammer Fantasy. But would you guys recommend with the launch of the old world? Do you think that's a good system to get into? Barring, obviously, we don't know the rules, just your prior knowledge of fantasy. Would that be a fun and enjoyable game to get into? I just think it's apples and oranges. What they're bringing out here with Fantasy Battle is uh, rank and flank, 
with um, square blocks of troops and a much more regimented style of combat with ranks and an ordering system and uh, tons of limitations. For me, fantasy battle was defined by what you could not do. And working within the limits of what was allowed is what made that game challenging and interesting. But it's a, a totally different way of thinking from thir- like Horus Heresy, where you have these guys who can skirmish and move, and you have a lot of different options, and and you've got these these really big toolboxes to draw from. With Fantasy Battle, you've got it's a totally different style of play, and that's geared to a specific gamer who likes that sort of thing. Um, Paul, what do, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's definitely the case. It's a very different game. I remember back in the day, um, it was you would play both, but it would usually lean towards one or the other. Like my store, it was a 40K store, but we all owned Fantasy so that when we got bored with 40K, we could have something else to play. The other nice thing in the past uh, was if you had 40K and Fantasy models, you could play all the side games. Mordheim, Kill Team, even Necromunda because they use the same models. You just had to buy the rule books. So it was worth having fantasy models just so you could be like, ah, you know what? I feel like playing Mordheim this weekend. Let's do that kind of thing. Um, nowadays, not so much because a lot of the side games use their own rule sets. You could probably, some of them you could sub in the models. Like I know Shadespire has like a night haunt faction that just uses the generic models, but a lot of them are going to use their own war bands, so you'd have to buy that stuff for those. Warwick, what about you? You've had some fantasy battles experience. What do you think? Yeah, I only played a couple of games before it kind of went defunct, but I had a lot of fun the couple of games that I played in. Um, I know I played... Well, anyway, I played Beastmen. That, that was the only army I had. And it, I remember it being a pretty fun, crunchy game. The rank and flank, as Manipul said, could be very interesting, um, especially in a game where there's no pre-measuring. Again, you like uh, <clears throat> you really had to be careful about your troop movements. You know, you could only when you got these big blocks of infantry or cavalry, you can only wheel them to a certain degree when they turn. So it's not like they can just turn on a dime. Um, it's definitely really cool. Uh, if you're looking for something crunchy like that, I'm pretty hopeful for this new fantasy release. Uh, again, I don't know what the rules look like. I haven't really looked into it. But knowing what the game used to be like and taking that into consideration with the uh, second edition heresy rules that we've gotten, I think I'm pretty optimistic that this old world game will be kind of a refined version of what we used to have. So, yeah, I'm hopeful. Yeah, I have really no knowledge of Warhammer Fantasy. Anytime I tried to get into it, I found the cost to be completely debilitating. Um, and it was just freaking brutal. And to be quite frank, looking at the website with the cost that they've got units now, it doesn't look like that's... It looks like that's still very much the case. How did you find anything on the website? The website oh, is garbage. <laughs> you were finding it anyway, and then to see it's all sold out is just a double kick in the, yeah. in the gut. But... I don't know. I gotta be honest, Warwick, you might be the only person I know who ever told me about a good time that they had in fantasy. Everybody else just told me about the shit times. Oh, I think I only won one game that I ever played, and it was in a tournament. 
um, it was it was at the Nits in Your Face tournament. This guy's name was Nitzel, and so every year he'd host a tournament called Nits in Your Face. <laughs> um, but I I think I only won one game, and then I came in last place of the tournament through the whole thing, and uh, it was it was pretty pretty. It's a pretty brutal game, but I remember having a little bit of fun. I heard Beastmen so were pretty underpowered in that age, but yeah, I heard so many horror stories of high elves in that game. Oh, yeah, they were crazy good. Well, anyway, the other fantasy game that Games Workshop makes, the Middle Earth Strategy Battle game, I will 100% recommend that to literally anyone who's interested to t- in tabletop wargaming whatsoever. I cannot speak highly enough about that game, and I'm, that's all I'll say on that. When are we organizing the Legion Cast 18 trip to New Zealand? Gosh, you know I want to do it. Can we hop on children. the good ship Chili Dog and have them take us there? Yeah. I Something tells me he would do it. Then maybe hit Japan on the way back? Just saying. Well, I was going to say, now that they've vented all the ballast out with the girlfriends and wives, they have plenty of space for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so all I'm hearing is uh, good ship Chili Dog hosting a hobby weekend for Legion Cast. One of these In days. New Zealand. It's, it's yes. going to be awesome. I heard that. In New Zealand. Yes. Welcome back, everybody. I hope you had a good break. I know we did. Um, We're going to get into our GW intern hour here. And what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about traveling with your models. So like I mentioned at the top of the show, I am heading to the Las Vegas Open this week, which will be a very first time experience for me, both going to that convention and also flying with models. So I wanted to kind of have a discussion here. Um, with all of you, and how do you travel with models? What works for you? What have you found that doesn't work for you? Um, and maybe what's some advice we can give to our listeners if they find themselves in that situation? In the old days, we didn't have many options. You would kind of wrap stuff in bubble wrap or paper or uh, paper towels, newspaper, anything, put them in whatever box you could find. One of my buddies used to carry around one of his really big models in a a number 10 coffee can. And this, this is your lowest cost option, but you're always going to have breakage because you don't think that the paper or the bubble wrap will have any effect on the model, but it does. Even with the weight of another few models on top of it, it can break off a wing or a gun or a hand or a, a purity seal, all that stuff. You're much better off having some kind of piece of hard foam that it's encased in that will resist pressure from the outside. And there's lots of different options for that, but try to get away from the paper towels and the newspaper boys because it always ends in tears. Yeah. The few times I've flown with models, pluck foam or um, a lot of the foam cases were really the best option. It's also very faction dependent. Um, You know, back in the day with space Marines and like fantasy stuff, those models were pretty robust, very short squat, that sort of flat, you know, horse stance kind of model were pretty sturdy as long as you use plastic glue. Um, a lot of the stuff nowadays, like playing Night Haunt, I've never 
really traveled with them outside of moves, and I can't imagine trying to like fly with them. They're so spindly, and they've got all these little bits that it's just it would be nigh on impossible to move them without any significant damage. Well, that was not a small factor in me deciding what game I was going to play when I went there. Uh, Because there was heresy events available when I booked my tickets. But I just didn't feel confident moving a 3,000-point army on a plane. You know, the Middle-Earth models are a lot smaller. Of course, I hate myself, and I'm bringing a Fell Beast. (laughs) So that's, that's that's a whole monstrosity in of itself. But trying to move, I mean, my, I think my Ferex list, uh, I had, I had a Whirlwind Scorpius, a Land Raider Spartan, three Dreadnoughts, and something like 70 infantry. Like, that's just a lot to fit into a suitcase. And in the old days, too, the models were more robust, as, as you guys were saying, that you had a, usually a pewter body, made with a couple of plastic pieces that were glued on that you could easily fix when you got home. But now when you have multiple spindly plastic bits, you've really got to take care to um, protect those. The first option that GW gave us were the hard-sided plastic cases. And they could they had um, three rows, or they could hold three um, slats of foam. Each of those held 36 models. It was nine by four. And what I always wondered was why I didn't make them a little bit bigger so you could do at least 10 by four. Because every game in that in that whole business was sold in groups of ten, not nine, so we were always short. You know what I bet you it was. I bet you it had to do with how they fit onto a pallet for shipping from China. I put money on that's exactly why it's that size, because they could fit that many more into a container. Yeah, well, and I was going to say uh, they did actually do a very short run. Uh, four by ten and i have one of them yeah the old it still has the citadel logo on it seriously it's it's three bricks of four by ten and it i i'm never giving that up i'll give away my armies before i give away that case because that thing is money yeah no (laughs) kidding yeah and i had a bunch of those little plastic cases and they they did a double-sized one that was called like their army case you could fit more in but still, eventually I moved on to the uh, Battle Foam. And Battle Foam is where I've got most of my storage at now. Have you guys used any of them? I'm just going to say it, folks. I am a Battle Foam slut. I love their stuff. I just ordered a bunch of trays for my Night Lords. I have no regrets. They are super easy to use. They're very, they're, uh, you, you basically get any kind of setup you want. Um, they fit in the, the banker's boxes if you don't want to buy a bag, which is what I do with like my ultramarines. Um, I think if I was going to fly with them like Brandon's going to, I would put those battle foam trays in a hard-sided box, not one of their bags, because, you know, you think about it, um, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, the guys handling luggage. They're just throwing it, hurling it on a conveyor belts and it's not a when the luggage is being sorted through the airport's bowels that is not a delicate process either so i think um 
when you're flying or when you're traveling with that kind of stuff. Thankfully, I've only ever had to drive with my stuff, but I, I would think if I was going to fly with it, I would want hard foam trays in a hard-sided box for traveling. Yeah, whenever I was going back and forth with college, that's what I was doing. It was, uh, I think I was using Federer Pluck Foam in, um, I think they had a, I think it was like a Plano case that I just cut the trays to fit into. Like, an, you can actually go and buy those like gun cases and they actually work pretty well with a little bit of modding. Um, and then just pack it in your biggest bag surrounded by clothes and, you know, usually they'll survive for the most part. Yeah, I think that kind of calls out a good point there, which is if you have the option to drive, just suck it up and drive. Um, unfortunately, Las Vegas is about a two day drive each way for me, um, which is the only reason I am not driving. I just couldn't take that amount of time. Um, at the, you know, at, at that point, I would have spent more time in the car driving back and forth than I would have actually there on the trip. So I, I definitely agree. I like Battle Foam. I think Battle Foam is overpriced. They're very expensive. Uh, and I don't like that because I want to spend all my money on models and not on places to put them. I have the, a few years ago, they came out with the, the cubes. So they had like, they called it the skirmish case, the battle case, and then the crusade case or whatever. I bought a few of those cases. And what I am currently planning on using is a, is one of the cubes. Uh, so that's carrying all of my infantry and cavalry. Um, and then for the witch king on fell beast, I took a cardboard box and I filled it full of teddy bear stuffing because I had that from a, uh, a, a, I was thinking about doing some smoke effect with it that I just never ended up doing. So it's sitting in a cardboard box full of teddy bear stuffing. With that GW case you have, can you put a lock on it so it can't be jarred open when it's being moved? Well, it's got latches and then it's going to go into my carry-on. Oh, okay. It's going to your carry-on. Never yeah, mind. so both of those boxes I was say, are going inside of my carry-on suitcase. Okay, I was going to say, if you had to check that and send it through the the system, if you can't lock it shut, I would su suggest going to Home Depot and getting some of the big zip ties and zip tying it shut. That way, when it's being handled throughout the airport, it's not getting jarred open. Yeah, and yeah. that was kind of the policy I had was the models are coming on with me. Okay. Because yes, every single time those guys are spiking those foot like it's a football. Yeah, and my impression of those those cube, the cube you're talking about was the plastic that it's made of is a little bit thin. When it's all together, it's pretty solid. But if if it isn't closed quite right and those latches aren't 100 percent secure, they can pop open. But yeah, thinking you're carrying on, it's probably going to be fine. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, you're right. They're not the most impressive cases in the world. But what I actually found is the way that they did that zigzag foam, the way they set that up, you can actually fit quite a bit in there. So yeah, that, I, that was the I best figured, part of that design was the zigzag mm -hmm. foam. It really solved a lot of problems. That's yeah. Good stuff. Especially with uh, like what Paul was talking about with the spindly models. You know, when I was playing 40K, I was playing Chaos Space Marines. So I know all about this. It was a nightmare getting those guys in and out of foam. Yeah. Uh, 
let's talk about this because this is my primary way of transport when I'm just, you know, maybe heading down to the local game store or something. Magnets. What do you guys think of magnets when you're traveling? If I was just going in the car, I would probably just have my army magnetized and put on a baking sheet. Because you can go to a thrift store and get those old steel metal baking sheets. And then your magnets from Amazon are pretty cheap, just with a little super glue. Glue them. You get, get the right size magnet for your base and then just set them on there. Then you put that in a box of some sort and you're good to go. Then the army's ready to play as soon as you just set that baking tray on the table. Pop, 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 pop. Get the guys out and it's it's really slick. I was just looking at Battlefoam's website at their Magnarack setup set setups. And like the cheapest one that you can get, and it comes with the bag, starts off at like $136. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm saying. Battlefoam is not cheap. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, then, uh, yeah, I'm not defending their pricing, but uh, I think that there's probably a better deal out there. Like, Brian, I really like the one that you have that you said you got on Etsy, but that guy doesn't make them anymore. Which sucks because that thing is the great. You guys can actually see it yeah, here in the background. I, it's an excellent You had that case. one. You had that one out last time I was down. I really like that setup, but it's just uh, I can't find one like it anywhere. And it the, the thing the the magnets to me are cool, and I would think that having a rack setup like that, obviously, I think that would be really handy. I'm just not finding one that I like for a price point that I think is optimal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately, that is the case. I actually I have two battle foam. Magnarack cases. So I have the Pack 720, which is kind of their mid-sized one, and then I actually have the Pack 1520, which is the big big one. And for those of you who don't know, the the numbers on there, the 720 and the 15 uh 1520, that is by their estimates how many 25 millimeter base models you can fit into that. They're huge. I got the, I got those for Christmas. Those were expensive. So the something I was trying to get at is um, the the cheapest uh, the pack plus with Magnarack slide out is one hundred thirty six dollars. I spent I think about one hundred twenty five dollars plus whatever shipping was on five foam trays for my Night Lords that are going to go in the cardboard box that the trays are being shipped in. And that's going to work fine for me. It's maybe it's a little white trash. Maybe some high class gamers won't uh, won't really care for that. But I think it's perfectly fine thing to do. Yeah, I I don't hate the foam at all. What I've actually found the reason I went to the magnets is I play a lot of events, and in an event you have to get your army broken out and packed up fairly quickly you're on a timer and magnets are just a hundred times faster for that also with all the spindly bits you don't have to worry about it because they're standing inside the case you know they're they're not rubbing up against foam so and if somebody out there is wanting to magnetize their bases there's a couple things to watch out for first make sure that your magnet is thick enough that when you glue it to the inside of the base it, it will come into contact with your surface if the magnet is too thin and it just sits at the top of the inside of the base, it won't contact the metal surface and it won't stick. The other thing to watch out for is getting a magnet that's too big. I had a buddy who got some really big, beefy 
rare earth magnets because he always does things to the nines. And he said, well, if I'm going to put magnets on these towel, I'm going to get the biggest magnet that'll fit on there. So he glued, started gluing all these magnets on the bottom of his fire warriors. And then as soon as he put two of them together, they smashed together, broke their barrels off, and then flipped upside down. And so he couldn't put them on the board anymore because the magnets were too powerful. And then those ended up all being refrigerator magnets. And he, he bought 500 of them. So get the magnet that's the right size for your application. If you're using standard Games Workshop bases, six millimeters by two millimeters. Yeah, that's about right. Maniple, are you, are you talking about JC? I am indeed. Is that why he's got like a hundred magnets stuck to a lamp post in his game room? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh my god yeah. i've been wondering about that for like four years now <laughs> yeah yeah now the funny yeah. thing is that those would actually be great for your titans if you had a bunch of those for like the arm mounts i think those would be about right for you especially for the for the great big titan yeah the um, warlords five by one for the arm mounts well these might even be too big for that i think these are five by threes so they're they're pretty thick, or five by twos at least, and they will really they're, they'll, they're they'll pinch your fingers. They'll yeah, pinch your yeah. Fingers. I remember messing with them one time when nobody was around. I was like, what? "Why does he have all these? These are way too strong for for models." Hey, th- this is the same guy who's got a um, a narsal hanging on his wall that he got when Lord of the Rings was new, and they were making all these these props available. And then one day I went to his house and I saw that there's a cork on the end of Narsal. And I said, why is there a cork on the end of, of Narsal? And he says, well, it's sharp. And I said, well, ha- yeah, so? He says, well, I sat on it and stabbed myself in the ass. Because <laughs> 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 he had it laying on his bed. And then he sat down to put his socks on and stabbed himself in the ass with Narsal, so... Okay, well, anyway, the reason I think I'm moving away from the the magnet idea is because while the magnets stick to the tray, I don't trust them to stay completely still, especially like moving through an airport. But I think what we've we've said here, if if you're fl- if you have the option, drive. Always drive if you can drive, and secondly, use foam. So. I will. Uh, I'm really excited to uh, to try flying with models. I'm not excited about the flying with models part. I'm excited to go to Vegas. I'm excited to play some games. I'll have to tell you guys all about it, um, and you know, go into this this big convention when uh, when we have our next episode. I'm looking forward to that detailed recap. It should be fun. Do we want to we'll, get into our Fulgrim's quest? We'll see how detailed it is because some of it might be drunk so long as you don't come back broke and with the tattoo i think we'll all be fine well i can guarantee the tattoo part i can't guarantee the broke part <laughs> sure all right fulgrim's quest maple you wanted to talk about weathering yeah we were looking for a topic that we haven't covered yet and i think we've probably spoken a little bit about a little bit about weathering in the past but if you are looking now into the movement towards Terra, you're going to find or the, the battles that are moving up towards the, the Siege of Terra. Your armies have been beaten up. 
they've been on the warpath for many years. They've taken a lot of battle damage. How might you model an army that is moving into this final siege? And then if we are moving into the scouring, it's only going to get even worse. So particularly when you're looking at armies that have used, had to reuse shoulder pads they picked up from the battlefield, or the tanks have been churning through mud and you've got extra supplies that you've tried to, to uh, affix to your troopers in some fashion. How do you make that look like it really belongs? Most of our armies are going to end up looking like they're parade ready, where you've simply assembled the model, applied a base coat, a top coat, and a highlight, and called it good, because you want to get that army on the battlefield and ready to go. But you know, then maybe step two is you go through, do a little more shading, a little more highlighting, touch up the base, make it look like a little more of a professional showcase type model. But the guys who get really good are the ones who make them look like they've been in a battle. And there are many different techniques you can use to get there. You can go through and do a lot of weathering techniques with powders, with oils, with rust effects. There's any number of ways you can achieve this, even using your hobby drill and your knife in order to get some some battle damage on your vehicles and armor. So that we talk about how if you guys were going to get the most bang for your buck out of making your models look like they've been in a battlefield, how might you do that? And I'll just start with an easy technique that I've done in the past where you just take your hobby drill and then go to, say, a pauldron on your Space Marine and drill a small little hole. And this is probably still while you're assembling the model and you haven't done your base coating yet. Then take your hobby knife and just carve a few little gouges out from the side uh, uh, in like a radial pattern. And then you have a bolter impact on that piece of armor. Then when you go to paint it, all you have to do is splash a little silver in there to look like the the underlying metallic bits have been exposed by an explosion of a bolt around, and you've got some really easy battle damage on a, a piece of Mark III armor, or maybe a sergeant who's out in front and his artificer armor has taken the taken the blow. And then with a very little bit of maybe some black ink or a wash on the outside of it that looks like some some uh, burning has taken place. You've got your first little bit of battle damage and that's where it starts. Once you then do that little piece, you're like, you know what? I bet I could do an even bigger one on a tank. I bet I could do a whole like line of these going down the wall on a piece of terrain. And, and now that this world has opened up to you of battle damage and weathering, what are some of the things that you guys have done to try to get that battlefield effect? Well, for me, uh, it's, it's really started with what I'm going to affectionately refer to as liquid talent, and that is streaking grime from AK Interactive. Uh, it's oil paint uh, that's pretty thinned down for you, and it it is exactly what it sounds like. It makes you look really dirty and gross, and what I've done is I've done that. I've added in some... Uh, some weather uh, with some pigment pigment powders uh, to really tie the model to the base. Um, from a modeling perspective, I haven't done uh, that much for in, in that regard, but really just making them look dirty, look grimy, that, that's what I've gone for. Talk about what you mean by tying the model to the base. Sure. So my, uh, my Dark Angels are... 
they are on kind of a muddy, foresty type base. So I've got some kind of oranges and some greens and a dark red pigment powder, and then I'll put those on the base, but then I will also run that pigment powder up their legs as well to look like they've been standing in the muck in the mire. And then when I'm putting on that texture paste for that mud, I will purposely like hit a, hit a knee joint or something like that. Like they took a knee to, to fire. There's still some mud stuck in that joint uh, after they got up and kept moving forward as well. Uh, the other thing that I think is important when you're going to dirty up your models, you need to be strategic uh is what i found so what i have done is my eye lenses are glowing are glowing uh it's a it's a kind of quick and dirty object source lighting job that i've done on them so obviously your eyes would not be dirty your eyes would be clear because you need them to fight so that it very it much draws you to that but you go there's no dirt here there's no grime here so thinking about where your your models would be dirty also how they would be dirty so i talked about the streaking grime one of the things i also do is on the metallic bits of armor i add instead of doing regular streaking grime i do rust streaks which is just a more red tinted oil paint as well so kind of just thinking about what does something that's dirty actually look like so that that's what i've gone for and that's where it's important to try to get some reference pictures. So if you're driving down the road and you see a, an old rusting piece of machinery that's stuck in a field, stop and take a picture of it. Or you've got a truck that had with a, with a tool toolbox on the back that has rust developing, take a picture of that corner where the rust is at and see how rust develops or we're all in the middle of a snowstorm right now. Go out and take a picture of a car covered in snow. See how the snow lands, and that will inform how it might collect on the boot of a space marine as well. And if it's coming from the ground up, you can just take a picture of your of your foot, you know, as it stands in the snow. What does that actually look like? And if you look at your bases and find out that your guys are out, you know, so often the models are sinking into material that should be hard or they're floating on top of material that should be soft. Really think about where should that boot line be? Where, where does the foot lie? That's a, that's a big part of how you're going to put that model together. The, uh, the last thing I want to mention as well, because I think this stuff is great and underutilized, is chipping medium. Uh, I know there's some tricks for this, like using salt and items like that, but chipping medium is simply a... Uh, liquid i i don't even know how you would describe it's not a pigment it's a liquid that you put on you base coat your model with a it's kind of like a, like a latex or a or a, a, a plastic really is mm -hmm. what it is yeah and then you you put a color on top of it and then you can go back with a wet paintbrush and pull away bits of that top coat to see the color that's underneath i do this on a lot of my tanks and with that, it's it's a lot of it is around the treads uh, where debris would have flown up and hit. And, you know, what Manipal was saying, look at a car, especially if you live up north, you, you'd have every example of this. Look at a car and after it's driven through the snow where the, that dirty snow flies up on the sides. Look at that pattern. 
I am very familiar with that. And that's why the past couple of tanks I've done, well, not the past couple, but the one that I did for you uh, for the first gift exchange, Brandon, and my Land Reader Spartan, I did the treads in a very similar way where I wanted to wanted them to look like they had driven through like a, a muddy track or trail or something. And so not only did I make the treads themselves look dirty, but I made a bunch of mud smears on the body that got thrown up like those treads were spinning in the mud. So being familiar with how debris is cast off of a moving object in any context, like um, if your space marine is in a running motion, he might have um, mud flinging off the back of his boot. So what what I do with um, with things in motion is taking, especially with the treads, it's very simple, the texture paints, you can use those to add texture to that, that mud and debris instead of just using, you know, like a painting dry brush technique or washes, something like that. It, it makes it look like it, it's a lot more three-dimensional. Yeah, and kind of going along with that, there are a pretty wide variety of paints. I, I think GW classifies them as technical paints. Um, one that I'd shout out if you're trying to do like really heavy rust is called typhus corrosion. It's basically a really thin medium paint with a very fine grit sand mixed in. So you can like paint it over stuff. And when it hardens, it basically leaves that sand embedded on the surface. And like a little bit of like a red dry brush over the top makes it look like a really corroded piece of metal. I think they specifically came out with that for Death Guard, but it works for anything you're trying to make rusty. Um, Vallejo has a really big line of these sort of like weathering texture paints, pigment powders, uh, and Tamiya that does all the like World War II, like uh, military uniforms and tanks and stuff also have a huge line. Um, the one I was going to shout out is Tamiya makes these, they're like makeup palettes where they have the little hard discs of pigment and it comes with like a little scraper and you can scrape off these like multicolored pigments and then apply them to your vehicles um, and they sell like a sand palette, an urban palette, a, an oil palette, a snow palette, and you just buy the one you need and you can use that to put in a lot of really fine details on your models for weathering. Yeah, Paul, that's actually a really good shout out that we should probably talk about is if you have a local group that's doing historical war games, odds are those guys know how to weather stuff because it's very common technique used in the historical war gaming community. Um, so that seek those guys out. They can definitely give you some pointers. Yeah, and most everybody who plays uh, historical ward games is super old anyway, and they've been in the hobby forever. So they're like Manifold. They're a long beard who has many, many moons of experience. And even if they don't weather their stuff now, they're like, I know all about it. Yeah, that and model train groups. If you have a local like model train or rotary club, those guys have got all the tricks of the trade. Side note, actually... If you're making terrain, your model train group guys, they'll set you up. Now, the uh, something you mentioned a minute ago, Brandon, was the uh, idea of using salt. And this is a, a simple technique that if you don't have access to the other stuff, uh, it's a really cheap way of, of getting this, a similar effect. The, the the salt method is that you, you paint your, your base coat at what you want the weathering rust or corrosion 
level to be. So that might be like an orange or a brown oxide, something like that. And then the part that you want to show rust, you take salt. Well, I should, I should say first you take water. You paint that area with water. And then you sprinkle salt on that area and the water will make the salt stick. Work? Not like ordinary table salt. You mean like sea salt or, or rock salt, right? The problem is that your sea salt and rock salt is, might be a little bit too big. It depends on the scale and size of your model. Even if you're just using table salt, you might actually want to take a mortar and pestle or the back of a spoon and grind that down into even smaller components. Because you got to think about how, you know, the, the size of a salt crystal that forms on the side of your F-150 is the same size as the one you're using on this model that's only at 28 millimeter scale. So you may want to grind that down and even get smaller. Then apply that as a fine powder on that area you're trying to get to look rusty. Then you airbrush or spray paint on top of that. This is where I really usually run into problems is if you use a, a cheap or even too thick of a spray paint, it won't peel off properly because your next step is to go back in with a toothpick or the end of a paintbrush and chip out that salt. And that reveals the rust un showing underneath. This is the same way a chipping medium works, but you just use a little water because that chipping medium is supposed to be water soluble. And you use a, a toothpick and some water to just scrape away the parts you want to expose. And then you have your, your finished product in the end. The benefit of using the salt is that it's really cheap and it's readily available for most people. Something I want to call out that Warwick said that I think was a really good point for weathering is adding a three-dimensional effect. Um, having that technical paint on there, something that looks like it's sticking to your armor, it really does a lot of the work for you. Uh, I was going to say one thing that I think we forgot to mention, uh, a quick tip is you'll probably want to varnish your models before you start doing the weathering, um, especially with acrylic paints because they tend to be fairly loose in their chemical structure and water-soluble putting stuff like oils and solvents and stuff like salt on the model can rip up a little too deep than you're ex anticipating. Uh, so putting a barrier of just a clear varnish over the top will prevent you from ripping up all that base layer paints that you put on. Um, I've definitely in the past used stuff like Microsol and Microset to put decals on models and did not put a varnish underneath only to rip off the base layer paints and the primer straight off the plastic and just ruin the, the entire paint job and have to start over again. So yeah, kind of uh, taking the extra step to prep your models will save you a lot of pain. And I think too, sometimes you can go a little overboard. I've done some models in the past where they've, I've done so much weathering and so, and so much corrosion on them that they look disgusting. And people will look at it and say, did you just pull this out of the trash? It, it looks like it smells bad. Yeah. And then you, you don't get the award because it looks too gross. One, this, this was one of the funniest things that happened to me at the Fierix event. The last guy I played, I think his name was Chris. He played World Eaters. And he showed me his Angron model. And he's like, yeah, when I first painted it, I like I went the whole nine yards. Like I did everything to it. And then I wanted to give him like a ton of blood and gore effect. So I basically just dipped him in blood for the blood God and 
blood effect. And so he was telling me he's got like this brass demon model underneath layers of red blood effect all over this Primarch model. And I was just like, I mean, I'll take your word for it because it's a hilarious story, but um, you can definitely overdo it. And I think that's the moral of the story. Um, I'm sure it, it was a very awesome model. Well, I mean, it's even an awesome model. I'll cover blood and gore, but um, a little goes a long way in regards to weathering. And that's why um, I think just a little bit of like one of the things that I have actually uh, for my Night Lords bases is this AK Interactive um, and it's just generic, uh, rough terrain medium, and it's not colored. It's just white. So I'll, and I'm not, I didn't do it with the first couple of models, but what I'll end up doing later on is since it's a plain color, I'm going to mix it with the color paint that I want to use for, I think I'm going to do like black volcanic bases. So I'll mix it with some black paint. And then to make my Night Lord's feet and legs look sooty, I'll take that same paint that I used and dry brush a little bit going up their greaves. And a little is going to go a long way. I really don't want to overdo it. Um, but I will be able to, to color match my basing material with the, um, the weathering that I'm actually putting on the models themselves as well. So I think, um, I think it'll, it'll all really tie itself together that way if you can use the, the same color on the model that you used on the base. Do you guys think every model should be weathered? I think that's where you need to sit down and do some writing about your army. Figure out the history of each of those units <clears throat> and what battles they've been in. When was the last time they had to refit? Try to just go back and do the last year of history with that with your army, and that will then inform you who gets the weathering who gets the battle damage and who is showing up with pristine armor straight from the forges ready to go. So no, I don't think every, everyone needs it unless your background is they've been fighting. They're a bunch of death guard who've been fighting a trench warfare for the last year and they've all been stuck in the mud. If that's the case, yeah, weather everybody. But if your story is different, follow the story, let the models tell it. Like my Ultramarines, they're all Imperium Secundus. They, they're all on like marble flooring. I'm not going to put any weathering on them because they're all at parade rest, basically. You guys have seen my Emperor's Children uh, as I've worked on them, and they're very, very clean. Uh, I painted that, that Spartan for them, and I was told, you need to add some weathering to that. And they said, even the perfect Legion has to leave the showroom and we'll get some chips in the paint. To which I said, excuse me, sir. If we chip the paint, we will stop and fix it before we go on. But I think even then, I what I did is I took a sponge, and this is a theory, this is actually one we can talk about. Sponging is a, is a really good way to do some battle damage as well. I just took a sponge, I dipped it in a little bit of metal paint, just very subtly around the the tank tracks, just a tiny bit of chipping in the paint. You really have to look for it to be there. But it is there. So, and it, it does actually do a lot to enhance the model. But that's all the weathering I'm doing on my beautiful boys. They're perfect in every way. Yeah, and along with lore, I think there's also a practicality factor. Um, I mean, you'll see these guys on, like, YouTube. Like, I've been following a Cult of Paint tutorial for my Sons of Horus, and the guy hand paints all of his chipping on the models. 
which yes, it looks amazing, but also I have 70 Marines to paint. I'm not hand painting 70 Marines with like, you know, hundreds of chips on their armor. So, you know, at some point you kind of have to measure your time investment versus the quality of the paint job and how much you can get done and when you need things finished by to really kind of make these choices on a lot of stuff. I think that's a whole different conversation that maybe we should do on the next Fulgrim's quest, which is, are you painting to put it on the table or are you painting for Instagram? Because those are actually very different things. Yeah. And a lot of these techniques too will be, we'll get different mileage based on the size of the paint project you're looking for. All right, guys. Well, we're starting to get pretty long in the tooth here. We got anything else we want to talk about? Nope. Looking forward to getting some, some games in once the weather improves a little bit. So hopefully get a chance to go see Warwick over at his place, or maybe he comes here, but hoping to get a game in this winter before the spring thaws. You guys are coming to Texas pretty soon, so that'll be exciting as well. I did get a game in last weekend that I, I was pretty happy with. Yeah, folks, why don't you go ahead and look us up on social media? We are Legion Cast, a Horus Heresy podcast on Twitter. And shoot us an email at legioncast18 at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you guys. Don't forget to share this podcast out there to all your buddies and give us a comment and a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for sticking around. Yep, thanks for stopping by, everybody, and remember to march in fortune.